Hey, good morning, Hillcrest family. Welcome to the new year. Getting it going again. Excited uh, to, to jump back into Luke. We took a pause from Luke during our Advent season. And, uh, and then last week, we uh, celebrated the new year of believing that we resolve for good and every work of faith. And yet, there is a miracle taking place in our life that God is uh, making us worthy. And so I'm excited to get back into Luke on uh, this next movement. Uh, but, but even as we get there, you heard Fred mention some of the things happening around here. I, I love uh, all the activity that is happening, and, it, and it's both simultaneously for the good of our body to build community, but also to provide an incredible opportunity. Might there be someone who's a bowler in your life or family night, uh, a great opportunity to invite someone to jump in. Uh, flannel and a fish fry. I mean, that's a Wisconsin thing, right? What do we do on fish fry Friday? My neighbor, love, I always ask him, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And he's got a new fish fry that he's headed to on a Friday night. Uh, mops, again, what a great opportunity to gather as mothers of preschoolers and be encouraged together. And so if you haven't registered for that, Women's Bible Study, I believe, jumping into Amos this year. So, uh, but we collectively here are jumping into Luke, and, and we uh, wrapped up that first movement in Luke, the entrance of the king, and we are jumping in now to this second movement from 414 to 950. If you're in a life group, your life group leader is picking up one of these packets for you for this coming year. If you're not in a life group, head to the welcome desk, grab one of these, a phenomenal tool to supplement our journey through Luke. It's, it's incredibly simple. And all we're doing, right, it's just describing the what. What does the text say? So what? what? Why should this matter for my life? And now what? What do I actually do with these truths? Uh, because every week we just gather, we hear from God through his word, but the world is looking for something to anchor their lives in. And so we anchor our lives biblically saturated week in, week out. And so we are now moving in to this next movement in Luke, the teachings of the king. And if you're like me, uh, maybe this Advent season, you're full, the holiday feast is still lingering in you. And so I just want to do a brief review on where we've been as we jump back in to Luke. And so here's just a sense of where we've been in Luke thus far. Uh, we, we went through the introduction. We saw that Jesus is like no one else. Luke is writing to give us certainty. He organizes this orderly account to give us certainty in who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And he showed us Jesus is like no one else through these angelic prophecies and this miraculous birth, not just his, but in John the Baptist as the forerunner. And then we saw 12-year-old Jesus, the only recounting of child Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus declaring uh, and teaching with authority, people impressed. And, and then we saw Tyler did a great job taking us through the baptism in genealogy, showing us how Luke included this to show us Jesus is both fully God and fully man, God incarnate. And then we ended with Jesus overcoming Satan. He overcomes Satan. Jesus conquers these temptations. He kicks Satan's butt. And Luke shows us that Jesus then conquers that as a foreshadowing of the ultimate conquering of sin and death. And then this morning, we're moving in to his ministry. Luke now turns a corner and begins talking about the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to see salvation is here, 
because Jesus is here. That's going to be the declaration. And yet, what we're going to see both in this story and many others, though he declares that reality, many miss it. And so open to to Luke 4, uh, verse 14. And we're going to go all the way to 30 this morning. Um, Luke 4, 14 to 30, uh, open in the Bible in front of you, uh, on your iPad, or you can read along on the screen with me. Here's the turn now as Luke shifts to this ministry and the teachings of the king. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this year of jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth. And he tells them two Old Testament stories. I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up in three years and in six months, a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So as we jump into the teachings of the king, I think this is where we're headed. I think this is where Luke's uh, inviting us in, in this next shift this morning. Jesus, in his first sermon, proclaims God's acceptance of those whom others may want to write off as unacceptable, resulting in a terribly surprising response. Luke records this first sermon, and you might think, wow, what a, what a beautiful sermon, a proclamation of the good news. And yet, as Jesus proclaims God's acceptance of those whom others may want to write off as unacceptable, it actually turns into a quite terrible response. So pray with me, and, and we will dig into the text uh, this morning. Oh, God, you're so good. You're good all the time, and all the time you're good. Help us experience that reality and help us hear uh, your truth proclaimed through Luke about Jesus' first sermon. Help us hear these words, and may they saturate our lives for our Monday to Saturday. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So so here's, here's where I think Luke is taking us this morning through this text. 
He's just going to move us through. He's going to show us Jesus proclaiming this first sermon. And we're going to watch people react to this first sermon. And then Jesus, being Jesus, is going to tell us what's going on in their hearts. To which then he tells us uh, about what actually he sees. And it ends up being true because they respond in a certain way. They end up rejecting him. And so... Here, here we go, just starting. And, and why don't we start in the setting, just to give some context for what's going on. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he comes to his hometown, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, good Jew, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so we're already seeing a setting occur about the teachings of Jesus. He's been doing miracles. He's been teaching, and people like him very much. That they're, they're drawn to his words, and including his, his words have gone so far, even his hometown is hearing about Jesus and faithful Jew who worshiped regularly in his home church, as was his custom. And then he begins to proclaim. Here's what he says. He tells us this first sermon is recorded by Luke. Pick it up at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he's handed a scroll. Pretty normal if I turned to Bruce and I said, hey, Bruce, can you come up and read Isaiah for us? So Jesus gets up, reads the scroll. The scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's handed a scroll. He opens it up and he chooses Isaiah 61. So if you're with me, turn to Isaiah 61. So flip over there really quick. Or slowly, take your time, <laughs> don't rush. Isaiah 61, Isaiah, if you've gone to Jeremiah, Lamentations, you've gone too far. Ezekiel, go back a few. Isaiah 61, and, and, and he reads those two verses. So Isaiah 61, here's what he says. About the servant of the Lord coming to deliver his people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So you go back and you read what Jesus read. What's the part of Isaiah 61 he doesn't include? The day of vengeance. So, so Jesus reads, and then he stops. Why do you think he stops? So he doesn't include the day of vengeance, right? So Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. He doesn't go to the next part where he says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Because the Jewish people, when they hear about the Messiah, what do they understand this Messiah is going to bring? Man, he's going to bring social and political change. 
He's going to comfort his people, right? He's going to bring freedom, and he's going to bring vengeance. In Jewish eschatology, when the Messiah arrived, it was both of those happening simultaneously. Jesus instead stops. (laughs) He says, I'm here to bring freedom for the captives. And we know, because we know the story, what's going to happen later. There is a day of vengeance coming, but Jesus instead says, my kingdom is already not yet. And he's bringing this proclamation of freedom. Now, now, how do people respond? Well, what's the core of that message? What's the core of that message? Jesus tells us a few realities. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, and the year of jubilee. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a restoration of all things. So Jesus declares, hey, I I am the anointed. God has chosen me. The anointed is here. He has arrived. This has been declared in your hearing. And then he says, I'm bringing something for the poor. And we're going to see two stories later, one of a poor widow and one of a rich Syrian. So I go, it's not financial, but spiritual poverty. We're going to see later there's a spiritual poverty that Jesus is coming to heal. Because in each of those stories, does he ever set any physical prisoners free? That was one of the four things he said he was going to do. Why we should take this more spiritual is because he never literally sets a physical prisoner free. In fact, he leaves John in prison and John's wondering, hey, I'm in prison. You haven't set me free. So we're taking that poor financially, yes, but more than that, spiritual. And then he says, there's freedom and release from the domination to those in bondage. The good news of the gospel is he's come to set people free from whatever is sitting and clinging so tightly to their souls. He's going to exercise some demons, and he's going to release people from the domination of sin. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, homosexuality, gluttony. He's actually come to set the captives free. It's core in his message of the gospel. And then he says, I've come to bring sight to the blind. We hear in other places, people are spiritually blind. They're walking dead. Yeah, they're alive literally, but instead they're blind. And Jesus is coming to give sight to the blind so they see their need for a Savior. There's Jesus' first message. And then he does a mic drop moment. He says, that is the good news that I've come to proclaim. The day of vengeance, that's coming later, but right now it is hope and life in Jesus, and that is a beautiful thing. Sorry, Mackenzie, am I getting a little loud? Slightly. If you guys were here for New Year's, was it New Year's last week? I brought my daughter up, and she said, the one area of growth, Dad, I'd love you to grow in. You're a little loud sometimes, a little loud. Jesus proclaims, and then he does a beautiful thing. Because it's just as if I said, hey, Bruce, can you read from Isaiah? Can you just come up? And then Bruce thumbs through, finds Isaiah 61, and then says, hey, this is about me, right? And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am God's anointed. And he just drops the mic at that moment. He says, salvation is here because I'm here. The good news that you guys have been longing for It's arrived in your hearing. Salvation is here because I am here. Now the question is, how do they respond when they hear this? What's the response that comes when they hear? 
They react. There's inevitable reaction when they hear Jesus proclaim this reality. Here's how Luke records it. Uh, Verse 18, set liberty those who are oppressed. 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And what did they do? All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And so the question is, why are they responding positively? Because you read about Nazareth and other places. I'm going to take it positively, so test this always. And there's some that take it negatively. Most take it positively. But you go, in Nazareth, in other places, Nazareth is not seen as a good thing. And yet in this context, as Luke writes, it appears they're taking his words really positively. That they hear him and and they lean in and they go, wow, they marvel at what he's saying. Is this not Joseph's son? You guys familiar with Pele? So Pele, pretty beloved by his hometown, right? Had some incredible success on the global stage of the World Cup and he is loved by his people in Brazil right? He is a hometown hero. They love this guy, right? We were in Kosovo, and uh, are you guys familiar where Mother Teresa is from? Skopje uh, in Albania, Macedonia, Kosovo. So in Pristina, in the capital, there's a, uh, a statue of Mother Teresa, right? They hold her dear. This is a hometown hero for the Albanians. They love her, right? Because she had some success On a global stage, I think the same is happening here. They start hearing about Jesus and the miracles he's doing. They hear him declare he's the Messiah and what starts to well up in their hearts. Man, we're actually on the inside track of this thing. He's one of our hometown heroes. He's a local boy. Do you know what that's going to mean for us? If Jesus succeeds, guess what that means for us? And there's this insider We're the inside vibe that starts to come up and well up in their hearts. And then they marvel and they question. What does this mean for us? If if this Jesus really is the guy, oh, we, we we want more of what he can deliver. And then Jesus calls out that heart that they're expressing. Here's what he says. He speaks to what he sees taking place in their heart. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Isn't this our guy? Isn't this? This means we get some of the credit that's going to be affiliated and associated with him. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, prove it. Prove you're the Christ. Prove that that's who you are and that that's what you've come to do. But then he goes a step further and shows that in their heart, they're really asking, entertain us. Entertain us like you've done elsewhere. Show us the miracles. And yet what I love about all of Jesus' teaching, you never find a place where he goes on a healing or demon exorcism journey without proclaiming the gospel. 
No account does Jesus go to heal or cast out demons without also proclaiming the gospel. He often calls people's hearts for missing him because they become so familiar with who he is. This is our hometown guy. Entertain us like you've entertained others. And Jesus then speaks to that heart. Here's what he says. Jesus proclaims, people react, he reveals their heart, and then he responds to that heart. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, and he tells them two Old Testament stories. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none, but to whom? An outsider, someone who was deemed as unacceptable, not worthy of receiving Yahweh's grace, this widow. None in Israel other than this widow. And then the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. But whom? One man, an outsider, a Syrian general. None of them were cleansed, but only Nahum, the Syrian. So turn to 2 Kings 5. I just want to read this story really quick. Turn to 2 Kings 5 just to hear the weight of the story Jesus is telling them. He senses their heart and then responds and says, you're just looking for me to entertain you. And he tells a story of two Old Testament prophets that they love and how they operated. Let's read 2 Kings 5 about... Nahum the Syrian. Because it's not about financial poverty, right? Because the widow has nothing. She literally feeds Elijah her last meal and is going to die. And then the jar never runs empty. The other guy, we're about to see, poverty financially wasn't his problem. Nahum, commander of the army of the kings of Syria, was a great man with his master and high in favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Come on. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, one of their, maid, one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. So these guys were not loved by the people of Israel. These guys attacked them. And she worked in the service of Nahum's wife. She said to her mistress, would my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Nahum went in and told his Lord thus and so spoke to the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. How would you feel receiving this letter? The king of Israel tells us. So when he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 chains of clothing, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you Nahum, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, a man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent the king away saying, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Nahum came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha 
didn't go out to meet him, didn't extend hospitality towards this guest, but instead sends a messenger saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Nahum was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This outsider humbles himself in his spiritual poverty before a God, and he is restored. And Jesus tells that story to these people in their response to his teaching. They're looking to be entertained, and Jesus cuts to their heart and says, you just want me to do miracles for you, but you don't actually get of why I've come. Not for vengeance yet, but for the good news of freeing the captives, restoring sight to the spiritually blind. Jesus responds, you should already know me. You should be drawn to my message, not my miracles. And he never returns to Nazareth again. This is the only recorded story we have in Nazareth. The repercussions of rejecting Jesus. If you don't embrace me and my message, I will go to those who will. There's this insider mentality that starts to creep up in my heart that I wonder about those who have yet to treasure Christ. Are they worthy? And that insider heart starts to creep up. The familiarity of Jesus starts to creep up. And I wonder, for those that may be sitting here that have yet to treasure Jesus because they on some level feel their Nahum or the widow and not clean enough, God instead welcomes and extends his grace and says, I will make you clean. But here's what floored me. There's an encounter Paul has in Acts 22. And this floored me this week. So turn to Acts 22 if you would. Paul is about to be thrown in jail and executed. But he has an opportunity to speak with his people, his fellow Jews. He says this in Acts 22. Because what's the big deal, right? Oh, this message. Jesus, what, the, the Syrian? Like, the outsider? I mean, we all get that, right? Everybody's included. Everybody gets an invitation. Here's how the Jews respond to Paul. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he began to tell them about his conversion. He began to tell them how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He began to share about how the scales fell from his eyes. He began to share how he was shifted away from murdering people that were following Jesus. He shared about his history and his background. 
and people were still and they listened and they leaned in until the end of what he had to say. Go to verse 21. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. And he said to me, Go, for I, Jesus said to Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And how did they respond? Up to this word, they listened to him. But as soon as the gospel message was for an outsider and those unacceptable, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. How did people respond when Jesus began saying he was the Messiah? Positively. They listened to him. They leaned in. And then he began to speak about what was in their hearts. That the actual gospel good news is for everyone. And here is their response. Verse 28. When they heard these things. What were the things they heard? Jesus, you're our hometown hero. We have the inside track. We're going to hang with you and see the miracles you do. And then Jesus says, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to set the captives free. I'm here to bring hope and sight to those who are lost. And all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down a cliff. What were they so offended by? I think as sometimes as an insider, for me, growing up in a system, it's hard to get my head around, you mean the gospel even extends to them? <laughs> you mean they get included too? All they need to do is receive? Jesus, why do you understand how wicked and broken they are? For you, who is the them that you can't imagine God extending his grace to? Again, you might even be in the room feeling you're so far from God that his grace can't reach you. And yet, that's what Jesus says he came for, to restore spiritual sight to the blind. And then I love, I love these realities, right? People reject. They get angry. And they try to kill him, and yet, what does Jesus do? Demonstrates he's always in control. But passing through their midst, he went away. He says, I'm not going to do a miracle, and then I almost feel the irony. Because it doesn't tell us exactly how that happened, and yet what it appears is there's a miracle that happens at the end. He says, I'm not going to entertain you, and then demonstrates again who he is. The closest I can picture is is when a bride walks down the aisle and the room is parted and all eyes are on her. In this instance, what ought to be captivating everyone's attention is actually sparking in their heart disdain and frustration. But passing through their midst, he went away. So what does that look like for us this week? How does this first sermon of Jesus land on our hearts for me, the, the big glaring takeaway is this, that familiarity does not equal faith. 
as close as I might think, it's actually falling more in love with the person of Christ in my Monday to Saturday. And there's, there's a guy named Eugene Peterson. Does that name mean anything to anybody? One of my favorite authors passed away a few years ago. I want to read a couple quotes for, from him about his appraisal of the Western Evangelical Church. Here's what he says. Those of us that are familiar, insiders, here's what he says. And he's speaking more to pastors, but I think, I think uh, applies to us all. When I look for help in developing my pastoral craft and nurturing my pastoral vocation, the one century that has the least to commend is the 20th. Has any century been so fascinated with gimmickry, so surfeited, so focused with fads, so addicted to nostrums, just, just nothingness, so unaware of God, so out of touch with the underground spiritual streams which water eternal life? In relation to pastoral work, the present-day healing and helping disciplines are like the river platus described by Mark Twain, a mile wide and an inch deep. They're designed by a people without roots in an age without purpose for a people without God. From one of my favorite books he wrote, he wrote this, from Under the Unpredictable Plant. North American religion is basically a consumer religion. Americans see God as a product that will help them to live well or to live better. Having seen that, they do whatever consumers do. They shop for the best deal. Pastors, hardly realizing what we are doing, start making deals, packaging the God product so the people will be attracted to it, and then presenting it in a way that will beat out the competition. Religion has never been so taken up with public relations, image building, salesmanship, marketing techniques, and the competitive spirit. Pastors who grow up in this atmosphere have no awareness that there is anything out of the way in such practices. That we get consumed with this familiarity and miss the essence of what we're after. Instead, I hope we at Hillcrest are enthusiastically, joyfully, wholeheartedly embracing Jesus as the only solution. The message of the gospel, not the packaging, I hope is the point. And as we go through the teachings of Jesus, we're going to see him call people. The road is narrow. The road to life is narrow. And so I hope if, if you're looking for a tool in the back of this packet, there's an opportunity just to assess where you feel like you find yourself. Do we feel we're caught up in all the activity and familiarity? Or as we look ahead to the coming year, do we say, God, I, I want to lean in and grow in following you more? of building community with other followers of Christ and, and then having a heart to seek transformation. Because what I love about this mission is that it feels like it's not Jesus' mission, it's actually the church's mission. That that first sermon of helping bring sight to the blind isn't just that Jesus said one day, but actually something we get to live in our Monday to Saturday. And so I hope you get to listen for and tell many gospel stories in your Monday to Saturday. That week in, week out, we actually get to hear and see the gospel being played out. That we get to see the creation story, the origin story God designed for good and how life was meant to be. We get to tell that story in our Monday to Saturday. We actually get to talk about how the world is damaged by evil and what's, what's wrong and hurting. We, we talk about that room for one on the throne of your heart. That we can actually direct people to say, we understand what you're looking for. <laughs> and they're shattered 
anxiety and depression that floods our world, there's a restoration for better, and it's God's remedy. It's the cross. We get to direct people to that beautiful gospel message in our Monday to Saturdays. And then the new creation, believing he will return and make all things new. We get to point to a future and say there is coming a day. So I'm going to welcome up the worship team. And I'd love us to pray this prayer. You're going to hear this prayer over the, the course of our teachings of Jesus. God, we, the poor, the captives, the sick, the oppressed, we need you. And so God, help me to listen closely to your teachings. The truth of who you are, the joy of what it means to be found in you, so that that truth and joy reshapes and renews me to know your truth and whatever you invite me into today. So I want to read that over us as we head into worship. God, help me to listen closely. Help me be attentive to your gospel being worked out all over the place so that it reshapes and renews me to know your truth in whatever you invite me into today. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.